Hi, my name is G.V. Freeman, and welcome to Psychedelic IQ, a podcast devoted to offering grounded and practical wisdom for psychedelic practitioners. At Psychedelic IQ, we try and weave our way between the secular and the sacred, and we've set our primary intentions on improving positive outcomes, increasing safety, and building healthy community within the psychedelic landscape. If you enjoy the show, please remember to give us a positive review, and always remember, the path is wiser than the traveler. Hello and welcome to the inaugural edition of the Psychedelic IQ podcast with your host, G.V. Freeman. I'm J.J. Kirkpatrick. I'm the producer of this podcast, and it's my pleasure today to introduce you to the host of our show, who is a journeyer and a guide in his own right, G.V. Freeman. G.V., welcome. Thank you very much. uh, It is fun to kick this off with you. I'm really excited about uh, what we have in store for folks. I'm right there with you. I am so thrilled about the guests that you have lined up and the topics that you're going to be discussing. And I think that's where we should start. Let's just hit the ground running. Tell us a little bit about what Psychedelic IQ is about. Who is it for? What kind of guests will we be having? And what kinds of things will they be discussing? And what kind of outcomes can our audience look forward to? Yeah, great question. I think that psychedelic IQ is, we say, uh, guidance for guides. Um, And guide being the bucket term that is sort of generally accepted. But, you know, guides, facilitators, clergy members, practitioners that are working in the space of psychedelics, we're trying to provide really grounded and practical advice for people that are working in the field. Um, I think that there's an enormous amount of content being created for the users of psychedelics. So I think that we have content going all the way back from the fifties and the sixties, but even more so since Michael Pollan um, wrote how to change your mind, I think in 2018, the amount of content that's been coming out for the, the journeyer has been enormous there has been very little information publicly released for people that are working with journeyers. So guides and practitioners in the space. I think right now there are guide training programs. You can pay enormous amounts of money to go to a training program. And oftentimes you get a lot of book knowledge, but you don't even have access to sit with the substances And you may be speaking with people who have sat a number of times with the substances. But I think that there are also, there are lineages that have been around for maybe millennia uh, in some cases where there are practitioners who have had deep, deep wisdom. And what I want to offer and what we're trying to create with Psychedelic IQ is a a place for people to share that wisdom, um, to share the guidance, whether that is coming from a clinical perspective, a more Western modality, or from a sacred perspective. And that could be from you know South America or any other place in the world. So it sounds like you're talking about maybe peer support for guides who really are kind of an, on an island right now. They, <laughs> they have their, their, their original teacher and... They're kind of on their own. Is that your experience? Yeah, I would say that if you were blessed to have a teacher, 
Um, if you are blessed to find and work within a lineage, you have been given a lot of great information through that lineage and through that teacher. And there are lots of lineages. There are lots of teachers and opening up people's eyes to all of the opportunities. I think that sacred practitioners could learn a lot from Western practitioners. I think that Western practitioners could learn a lot from sacred practitioners and uh, giving people some peer support, um, talking about some of the challenges that guides uh, have taking care of ourselves. How do we um, physically, psychologically, energetically, spiritually take care of ourselves are things that a lot of people don't have access to, especially if you are operating on an Island if you are in a lineage, you might have a teacher or a community. If you are not, you might be you might have been operating for decades sort of on your own and figuring this out on your own. And I think that we have reached a point in time where there are people coming out of schools um, that need more support, that need really grounded and practical advice. Yeah, what are some of the downsides that you see to not having that support? If I'm just a guy that has been figuring it out on my own and over over several years, what are the downsides of me going about my guide work that way? I think we, if we're just going it alone and we we're not operating with a teacher or mentors or within a lineage, I think that. It's really easy to cross some some gray lines related to safety and ethics. Sometimes if we are working in a peer support um, community uh, or peer supervised community where we have a chance to show up and be honest about our challenges, if we're even having um, challenges with a specific client, uh, we can bring some of the transference and counter-transference into a, a peer support model and receive some feedback on, hey, like maybe you're like stepping a little too far over the line here, or maybe this person is triggering you in an interesting way that you need to look at and go do your own work. Um, I think that safety is a huge aspect. Uh, you know, safety, positive outcomes are another thing that I think psychedelic IQ is really focused on. So support, Positive outcomes and safety are probably the three biggest things that I want people to get exposed to. And all of those are assisted when you're in community and they and they can get really murky and left behind if you're doing things alone. The word I've, I've heard you bring up several times now is safety. And this is something that's been a hot button for you and I in these types of environments and is is something that I think as psychedelics become more mainstream, more people are going to realize that this might be an opportunity for them to clear some mental health hurdles and safety is going to be paramount to those individuals. What kinds of things or what kinds of ways will the psychedelic IQ podcast focus on safety? You know, I think that we have two primary models right now in the psychedelic community. One is doing individual work and one is working in groups and the safety protocols for those can be very different. In some ways, they can be very similar, but in other ways, I think they can be very different. And you know, even when we look at 
if you're in a clinical model, the idea of touch might be something that is completely avoided. If you are working in a more sacred or a spiritual model, touch may be welcome or encouraged. And finding the balance between like when it should be used and how it should be used and do we need two people in the room if touch is going to be incorporated and what are um, appropriate agreements that we set up with our clients and boundaries that are made ahead of time. All of these things are talked about, but they're usually only talked about by people that have used psychedelics and have been uh, in some way like harmed by a guide. I was touched inappropriately or I was um, I didn't even uh, sometimes the guide might not even know that they're interacting with a client in a harmful way. And I think that exposing and giving people opportunities to create even more clear and succinct boundaries with their clients is a, is a huge opportunity for safety. Touch is just one way. I mean, we're, we're dealing with psychological issues. We're dealing with spiritual issues and there, I think safety can be incorporated into the physical, the psychological and the spiritual. Yeah, and that's you touched on the fact that a lot of the clinical, in fact, I'd almost say 100% of the clinical settings require two individuals to guide somebody for that safety purpose. And a lot of times, I think in some of those cases, they're even videotaped. So I wonder what your opinion is on the double guide, because that obviously dramatically increases the price of that experience, which dramatically reduces the number of people that can take it. And then what you might think about the recording a session being observed. You know, I think that if two guides are available, I think two guides are amazing. And it would be great if everybody could have two guides working with them at the same time. I love the idea of working with a masculine and the feminine energy in the room at the same time. I think there, I have had such beautiful and healing experiences of being able to work with both a, a man and a woman in the same session and how they were able to weave um, such like more masculine um, introspective psychotherapeutic approaches and then a very gentle feminine touch um, softness, not necessarily even real touch, but just the, a softness of energy. But the reality is most of the people that are using two facilitators are having those costs subsidized by research dollars, grant dollars, donations. Like, um, you know, if you're in a clinical setting, if you're a MAPS facilitator that has to work with two guides, a lot of those sessions are being paid for, not by the participant, but by somebody else's money. So two guides are great. But the reality is what we're going to be coming into as more places legalize and create structure around who can guide and and how things should be facilitated. I think there's going to be a lot more individuals working one on one with with people. And in those instances, having even more safety built into the preparation process is important. Having both the guide and the client well-informed about what is acceptable and what is not acceptable uh, is, is great information. And it's stuff that people sometimes don't even think about. 
we don't know what we don't know. And I think this podcast, Psychedelic IQ, is a way to start exposing some of what we don't know um, and sharing some of that information with with other practitioners. You know, related to video, that's a that's a really challenging question. And I like I have I could flip a coin, and some sometimes I wish that there was video um, for safety. Sometimes I wish there was video to record what someone is saying during their process because I just can't write down fast enough what is happening in the middle of a session. Other times, I think that the use of video inhibits an individual's ability to fully process and to to think that there is another set of eyes or like, oh, maybe I shouldn't say this because it's going to be on camera and I don't want this to be recorded. I don't know the right answer for that. Um, And I think that every individual, every practitioner has to make those decisions uh, for the best use of their practice. Yeah. And I I agree with that. I think that observing changes things. And then, so the only way around that is don't tell the person there's a camera there. Well, that's, that's an ethical issue that we don't want to open either. (laughs) Um, But uh, that as, as clinics open up, as these things become more legal and more mainstream, uh, I, I'm curious to see how that thing will that that element. If you don't have two guides, is a camera necessary? That kind of thing. We'll we'll cross that bridge down the road. But this is a good opportunity to, to circle back to you to to GV Freeman, guide journeyer. I want to know about you. Where did you? Where what is the the evolution of your path? How did you become a guide? And what what made you want to start this podcast now? Well. The first thing that I will say is I don't love to call myself a guide first. Um, I think that it's a generally accepted term. I also often find like in the if we think about what a guide does um, in other contexts, they usually walk in front of uh, the person and they say, hey, come this way. And I do think that in some cases, as facilitators, we are encouraged to uh, be the finger pointing at the moon. But we are, or we shouldn't be the moon. Um, we're just the finger, and the individual is showing up to really look at the moon. Um, so I like to consider myself a spotter um, in that I am, uh, as you're climbing a mountain, I'm the one holding the rope. And at moments, you might get stuck and not know where to go next. And I'm simply just going to point to a space on the mountain and say, if you move your left hand to like three o'clock, you might be able to find a handhold there. Um, So I I prefer the term spotter. It's not a generally accepted term though, Uh, but it it removes me out of the the client's process a little bit more. Who I am as a, as like how I got to this point is a great, great and confusing question. I was born in a tiny little town in the middle of central Nebraska 700 people. Um, I moved then to a, a little bit larger town of 3,500 people. And in some ways, what really caused all of this to happen was some pretty uh, traumatic experiences that I had in high school that caused me to escape high school for a year. I ended up becoming a foreign exchange student at 15 years old. I moved to Europe um, to live with host families, um, to, to live in a country that I didn't speak the language because it was easier than staying in high school and being further traumatized. The unfortunate part about all of that is that I ended up 
with developing a somewhat of an unhealthy relationship with substances, primarily alcohol at that point in time. And that continued for about 15 years. Um, and in 2007, uh, I ended up getting sober in a 12 step program, still sober today uh, from alcohol. And through my healing process, I got sober in 2007. I found therapy and um, deep, deep uh, seven years of deep work in, in psychodrama starting in 2012, that then also led me into yoga. I had got my yoga uh, teacher uh, training and certification in 2013, where I met uh, a shamanic practitioner. And I did some work with them for a number of years until we reached a point where I couldn't go any deeper. And they said, well, the, the only other option that we have to go deeper is ayahuasca. So in 2015, I ended up sitting in Peru um, in the jungle. And that was my first experience using psychedelics as a healing modality um, and truly changed my life. Um, opened up all sorts of interesting opportunities for me. <clears throat> Since that time, I have worked with Coranderos serving ayahuasca and organizing groups for individuals to set in community. Um, I met uh, my first LSD teacher in 2018. Um, I met uh, then subsequently met a, a mushroom teacher who I primarily work with today. Um, and then also my, I would call my master teachers, my root teachers in the medicine space today are two individuals from Peru who have been serving both Wachuma and ayahuasca for a couple of decades. How I ended up doing what I'm doing is I was asked um, someone after organizing for a couple of years and holding space for individuals while they did work in a group, I was asked by an individual to say, hey, like, would you trip sit for me? Uh, and that's that's really how my path started. Was simply being asked to trip sit. And I was a DJ for 15 years. I spent a couple of years on the cruise ships uh, with Carnival Cruise Lines as a DJ. So I used all of my musical talents from those years. And now rather than playing to, you know, a couple hundred to a few thousand people on a cruise ship um, that were like super drunk and playing dance music. Now I just play like really slow ambient music and classical music for people uh, while they do uh, really deep work. So uh, I have used a lot of the skills from uh, all of my life to, to kind of come together uh, and do the work that I'm doing today. Well, we will dive much deeper into the musical side of things because that I think is one of your greatest gifts and I'm not the only one that said that, but I want to touch first on the fact that you have had so many teachers and you have had, and they're continuing to influence how you guide ceremony. So what, what has the importance of that been and how does that translate to what this podcast may do for its listeners? Yeah, I... I think that there are, well, maybe I'll go back one step. In, in 2018, uh, I was studying with Ram Dass in Hawaii. GV is actually short for Govindas. Um, and Govindas was a name given to me by Ram Dass. So I would say like my, maybe my root lineage um, is, is through Richard Alpert, Timothy Leary, uh, you know, back in the 60s. Um, that's where it all started. So my, my lineage and name comes from there. And that's also where spirituality, like I think, comes into play. So 
Ramdas used to call himself a spiritual dilettante uh, in that he he practiced a lot of different modalities, but never went super deep or never devoted himself to a single one. So whether it was, you know, Buddhist meditation or bhakti yoga or any of the other modalities, Sufism that Ramdas had exposure to, I naturally gravitate to that. Um, I would say I'm an expert generalist. And I love um, the concept of sort of, of, of a meta-analysis of, of information. So that's the reason why I wanted to start the podcast is that I think that there are opportunities that somebody serving ketamine today in a clinical setting might learn a lot about integration from somebody that might be serving ayahuasca and somebody serving Mushrooms or Wachuma in a very sacred tradition could learn a lot about transference and countertransference and boundaries and ethics from a, a Western practitioner that has a lot of experience in the psychotherapeutic uh, world. And I love the fact that I have experience with multiple medicines and multiple teachers. It's allowed me to, to pull from so many different areas of, of schooling and knowledge and to create um, something new in a lot of ways. Some people might disagree with like the, the idea of creating something new, especially if you're in a, in a deep lineage, you may be sort of told and taught by a teacher how to do it in this one way. But the reality, I think what we're coming to now in the world is that the sacred is bumping up against the psychological or the sometimes scientific. And some of what we're learning today with, you know, fMRI brain scans and how the brain reacts uh, with increased neuroplasticity for a certain period of time after an experience. If we can take some of that information and apply it to what's happening in this, in the world of the sacred and build better integration programs or help people prepare better for sacred journeys. I think we're all winning. Um, and I just love the idea of hearing from many voices and letting people make their own decisions. Yeah. And that's, that's true. I, and I think that that's the kind of thing I've seen evolve in you. And I think you've, I've seen you borrow from the various practitioners that you've brought in, which I think is outstanding. I mean, that's what, that's what we're supposed to do. That's what, that's what doctors do. Yeah. Well, whether we're supposed to do it or not, I think is a it's every individual gets to make up their mind. Um, you know, I think that there is a definite advantage of going incredibly deep with a specific medicine or within a specific lineage. So I don't discount the depth that some people choose. And you could say that about Vipassana. Um, I set for Vipassana in 2020 and had out of all of my experiences in the spiritual world out of all of the times that I've sat with ayahuasca or wachuma or mushrooms or whatever, my most profound healing moment came in a sitting in meditation. So I think that psychedelics are just one path. And if we can look at this holistic model uh, and learn from each other, I think that we will create something very powerful. We can create something very powerful. But I also think there is a beautiful opportunity for some people to find one teacher and go as deeply as they need to do. Ram Dass used to talk about 
All methods are traps, and the good methods will always trap us. We can only hope that the trap at some point in time will like self-implode, will disintegrate. Because if we follow that method too far and we become trapped by the method, we may never grow. And I am all about using whatever methods I can and allow them to trap me long enough to learn what I need to learn and then find the next method. Now, would you say that beyond just receiving instruction from your teachers that do you kind of make it your own? Do you find your own voice, so to speak, as as a guide and facilitator? Yes, um, undoubtedly. Um, In some ways, I started my journey alone and beyond anything. I would say that that is another reason why I'm creating Psychedelic IQ and why we built Psychedelic Masterminds was that if you are going at this alone, it can be a really challenging uh, place to live. Not a lot of people have the the awareness and the experience. Not a lot of your average day-to-day friends are going to have the awareness and the experience to help you unpack some of what happens when you're working with clients. And I hope that this podcast makes solo practitioners feel less lonely than I did for the first couple of years of my practice. Fortunately, and when I started, like I said, I was sort of a trip sitter, wasn't really even taking money for the work that I was doing. It was just an opportunity to hold space and and be supportive of my community as, as my interest grew as more people started asking me to do the work. Uh, that's when I started seeking out support and support at that time was not easy to find more and more. Now there's guide training programs and people are underground guides are coming more above grounds and sort of coming out of the closet, uh, which I think is a perfect opportunity right now to start having these conversations uh, with other guides. Cause I think in the past, there has have not been legal jurisdictions for people to operate. There now are legal jurisdictions for this to happen. Yeah, and I think that's that's why the timing of this podcast, from my perspective, couldn't be better because we have essentially hundreds, thousands of underground practitioners serving this medicine across the globe. As it it starts to become decriminalized and even legalized across the globe that opens the door for all kinds of licensed practitioners to come do this work in clinic. And they're vastly going to be outnumbering what was previously more the sacred and traditional space that, you know, may have encountered decades of, of training or decades of experience in, in serving these medicines. And it seems like there's an opportunity for real danger in that where people that don't know what they're doing because they're so new to it can really cause some harm. And I think that's where the new group can learn a lot from that underground group, people like yourself that have been doing this for a long time, have seen a lot and know how to help somebody avoid the the landmines, if you will. First, I, in the grand scheme of things, I have not been doing this very long. Uh, in fact, like to talk about some of the people that we'll have on the, this first season, I think we have, we have a, an underground guide um, who has been practicing since the late 60s. Like they have sat with many of the big names who we would consider um, kind of the mavens in, the, in this space. They have been operating in that world for a long, long time. Um, 
we have somebody that has been very actively serving and successfully using ketamine um, in a clinical setting. Uh, I have somebody that is going to talk about harm reduction um, and safety. We have somebody that's going to talk about uh, preparation and integration um, and using all different medicines. So we're, we have a, uh, an ayahuasquero who's been serving for you know, the better part of 20 years in a very deep Peruvian lineage. And the, what we really want to do is expand people's perspectives to know that there are other ways and other opportunities to serve not only maybe the medicine of your choice, but you know, other opportunities to, to, to use other medicines uh, and other practices pulled from one medicine into another. And I think that each person that listens to each episode of the podcast will hear at least one thing where they'll be like, huh, I wonder if I could incorporate that into my work. I wonder if I could maybe try and play a different kind of music in my journeys that I never even considered playing. Or I wonder if I could incorporate a lot more silence into my experiences. And I think that we have no idea yet what's going to, what valuable little pieces of information are going to come out of these recordings. But I can tell you that it's going to be fun uh, to hear other people share their experience, strength and hope and, and some of the positive outcomes that they've helped people achieve. Yeah. And I, I've seen some of the names on your list and I think you may even be downplaying a little bit of, of some of the people that are going to come on and, their breadth of experience. I'm so excited to hear, and I know we don't want to reveal any of that yet. We'll reveal that as it comes, but yeah, I mean, I'm very excited to hear the perspectives of these individuals and their case studies, their war stories. And that is going to help the new practitioners and the people that are, are doing this alone. It's, it's inevitably going to help them to, to be better guides. You said war stories and I think that there there could be some war stories. There could also be some really like amazing fairy tales. But more importantly, to that point, I think that we really are going to try and focus on storytelling. We're going to give people opportunities to tell their lived experience and the the how they have used their teachings to transform um, in really amazing ways. Um, other people. So we're we're hoping that this is going to be a lot of storytelling. It's not just going to be. This is not going to be about um, numbers. It's probably not going to be about fMRI scans and um, statistical analysis and standard deviation. This is grounded in practical advice for guides. Yeah, that ultimately leads to safer, more positive experiences for the journeyer. And that's what this is all about. Yep. I was just going to say safety, increase positive outcomes and support. Like those are the, the three pillars that we're standing on. Yeah. And, and that's important. I think now again, more than ever, especially coming out of COVID that we see the mental health crisis in this country and across the world really has, has spiked. And this is the same time that all the data out of Johns Hopkins and all these other research institutions is showing, Hey, these substances are remarkably effective compared to anything else that has ever been devised or tested standard deviations above more effective than the standard medicines that someone might use. Oh, and by the way, you may only need to take them once. Well, let's, (laughs) 
I want to be the, I'm glad that you asked the question and I want to be the first person to dispel a lot of the rumors. And for all of the guides and practitioners that are listening right now, probably agree that the, the media, I think, and even some of the research data has caused challenges, if not harm and a lot of unmet expectations to think that we're going to show up and do this thing one time and all of my problems are going to be solved. I think that that has been a um, an unfortunate outcome of, of a lot of the positive press that psychedelics are getting right now. The reality is it, it rarely happens that way. You might have a profound shift and change from a single experience, but to think that you're going to unwind 40, 50, 60 years of behavior or trauma in five or six hours is pretty unlikely. Yeah. And I think that's where the integration comes in and the work comes in. And that's, again, getting back to your point is that you don't need medicine to do any of these things. Sometimes medicine, as you, you uh, like to say, is rocket fuel to move the boulders out of the way that let you do your work. Yes. And it's uh, psychedelics are only one of the, the versions of medicine that we can, we can use. Like I said, Vipassana was a, was one of the most powerful experiences that I've ever had um, that required absolutely no psychedelics. And I transformed some of my deepest wounds in that, in that practice. But for folks who don't have, or maybe are not even capable of sitting quietly in silence for 10 days, Psychedelics are a pretty uh, good way to approach some of that same wounding. Agreed. So part of what I, I'm hearing that that's happening, I know that one-on-ones that you perform, there's a lot of prep work before the ceremony happens, before the medicine's ever ingested, meaning that the individual that will be sitting with you will be filling out worksheets and doing a lot of uh, pre-thought into what are the things that they want to work on. And they do that in the setting with you where they, they can dive deep. They have their, their session with you that lasts, you know, eight to nine hours probably. And then they have multiple integration sessions and calls with you afterwards to, 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 to make sure they're processing that those messages or whatever they, they took out of that experience. Is that something you think that the guests on on this podcast are going to go down that path will they ex- explain preparation will they explain integration yeah uh, we have people planned in this season that are specifically focused on integration work for instance uh, maybe not as much on preparation but it's something that we'll probably talk about if you even if you look down the sacred path if you look down in the ayahuasca most ayahuasca lineages would encourage like anywhere from two weeks up to multiple months of a specific dieta um, really looking at what we're putting into our body, um, both from a, not only a food perspective, but the media that we're ingesting, the type of people that we're spending time with. It's all preparation. It just looks different. I, I work with some more shamanic practitioners who do not deal with anything in the psychological world. Um, they believe that the healing can come a hundred percent from the energy body, from the, from the spiritual body. So there is no psychological processing. They let the medicine do the work and they stay out of the way. And that's one path and one tradition. If you look at the psychedelic assisted psychotherapy route, 
that's going to be very different. It's going to be highly focused on more talk therapy, less on the mystical aspect, more so on the, um, the psychological aspect. But we know we have study data today that shows that both work. We know Johns Hopkins shows that the mystical experience can offer profound change that is in sometimes completely unexplainable. And we also know that dealing with PTSD using MDMA and all of the work that MAPS has been doing for 30 years is also incredibly profound. So how can we as practitioners take all of the information in and provide the best solution in our own unique energetic way How can we provide the best and optimal solution that we can to our clients to incorporate everything Uh, or incorporate not everything, but incorporate what you feel as a practitioner uh, would most improve your practice? So if you're as a practitioner, if you're not doing any integration right now, then there's an opportunity to make major positive outcomes, uh, improve your positive outcomes for clients. Um, If you're not doing enough preparation, there are opportunities there. And there are just things, if you've kind of grown up without a lineage and without a specific teacher or a protocol, you've just kind of been making it up as you go to the best of your ability. The opportunity to learn from people who've been doing this for sometimes decades could be outstanding. Like we could be, we could be treating people in so much more effective ways if we just listen to the experience of those who came before us. And that's what's so exciting about this podcast. That's exactly what this podcast is designed to do. And with the lineup again that you've put together, we're going to get a a very diverse set of individuals with experiences that will help anybody. Now, that brings me to a question that you, if you have a spiritual side, you have the spiritual slash sacred side, the Western side, the clinical side, those are seemingly opposing. How would you as a guide perhaps suggest which maybe how to choose your clients. So if you have a client that is maybe if you're more on the spiritual sacred side and you have a client that really would be better off in the Western clinical setting, will that be something that is discussed on this podcast? How to discern who is the good fit for you as a, as a guide? I think that every person that we would interview would have a different answer to that question. And I think that all of those answers are valid. I can tell you from my perspective, the people who show up and want to work with me are the right people. There's a reason why we work as practitioners with our clients. The reason why clients are attracted to us, you know, there's, I, this is maybe a, a tad on the controversial side, but I, one of my dear friends that has worked in the medicine space for a number of years, started off working in a, in an ayahuasca community where he was introduced to the medicine and had some really profound openings and, and shifts in his healing. But he quickly began to realize how unsafe that community actually was. And that community was perpetrating harm on some of its uh, members. The question that he and I have talked about multiple times was, well, if he didn't start there, 
Like, would he have made it to the next step? Would he have found uh, a safer community? Would he have found a place to do deeper work? Or did he need to start in a community that was a little more loose, was a little more ruckus? Um, so I think that in some ways, from a very, like my teacher Roberto would say, brother, everything is perfect. Um, and that the universe, we can't teach particle physics to a particle. And right now we're all, we are all particles just bouncing around, doing the best that we can. There is, from a spiritual perspective, there is a much bigger master plan that we do not understand. So who am I to be a judge for somebody carrying medicine in a specific way? Um, it's, in a lot of ways, it's not my role or responsibility to tell somebody how to do their work. And I think that we are drawn to the people who will allow us to have the next experience to go further on our path. Unfortunately, in all honesty, and I have had this experience, in all honesty, sometimes that can feel like harm. And I do, I do not wish harm to be perpetrated on anyone, but I will tell you that some of my greatest teachings have been in a setting where I didn't feel safe because I realized what safety felt like and what say what lack of safety felt like and how I wanted to provide even more safety and what that safety felt like for the people that I work with and the people that operate in our community. So it's I think it's going to be interesting to to have a maybe sacred practitioner, even if you imagine this. A sacred practitioner talking about using psychedelics to harm or to 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 help someone move through past sexual trauma. I know people that are working in the sacred sexual world doing work with psychedelics and they are, they are working with clients in a very intimate uh, way that would never ever operate uh, in a Western modality. And that's okay. It's not for everybody, but there is a lot of people who have experienced sexual trauma who's, Therapists have been very unsuccessful in treating that and they reach the end of the road and they finally find relief through intimate work with a qualified guide. Um, who am I to decide what people should do and how people should heal? All I am trying to do with psychedelic IQ is to give folks exposure to everything that's out there. And that's exciting. I think that more and more people will certainly come out of the woodwork to talk and share their experiences because I think there is a collective interest in that guide community to, to help overall humanity. And I think that's the ultimate purpose. So the, the next question, you know, getting into the, the fundamentals of psychedelics, set and setting, that's obviously something you hear. You can't crack open any kind of psychedelic book or manual without those two words smacking you in the face 50 times. So what, what kinds of things might you ask these guests about the importance of set and setting and how to create the best set and setting for their modality? Again, I think that this is going to be very guide specific, very medicine specific, um, very, in some ways, setting specific. The, the set and setting for an ayahuasca ceremony in Peru might be very different than an ayahuasca ceremony um, held in the United States. 
going to be very different than a one-on-one setting for uh, mushrooms, going to be completely different for iboga. And that is the question is the question. I appreciate the question because I think that it opens up this space to say there is no one right answer. Every individual that we're going to talk to is going to come at this from a different perspective. We all know that set and setting is important, but depending on the medicine and how you are operating, if it is more sacred, if it is more psychological, all of that's going to be different. And there are things to be learned from each person. Yeah. And the reason I ask that is, again, thinking about the Western versus clinical experience and you and I have had discussions in the past about the fact that you've got a researching facilities, organizations, institutions that are setting up very, uh, you know, sterile feeling rooms with neutral colors and very, you know, hard surfaces that feels like a doctor's office and just the conflict between that and maybe the setting that's behind you (laughs) where, Many many people have journeyed successfully. So, and, and candidly, without naming names, they've sought your advice on how to create a setting more like your setting versus a doctor's office. Yeah. The the individual who asked about the setting that you, people see behind me is also, um, that comes from a more clinical background and we're interested in softening their area, but I'll tell you another really interesting Example. You know, here in St. Louis, uh, Washington University is doing a study where they take people through a number of fMRI uh, scans before the session, a number of fMRI scans after the session. And as a part of their protocol, they are putting an individual into an fMRI machine at the peak of their experience. So imagine if you've ever had an, an, an MRI before and that the, the loud rumbling of that machine. When I first heard about it, I was like, wow, that would be really uncomfortable. Like I would not want to be that person in this MRI machine. And the, the researcher who was doing that work said, people have a, an incredibly profound experience and can often make it feels like it's they're in the womb. So you're in this tight, small space um, and that in this case, because they have been well prepared, it's not a new experience. They've had multiple scans beforehand. That is an appropriate setting for this type of work and it has produced phenomenal outcomes. So the fact that you can't sit in the jungle, I, I, I have this conversation with a lot of people related specifically related to setting there are individuals who say no i will never sit with ayahuasca in a city i'm only going to do it in nature or i'm going to go to sit in the jungle because that is where it's the the medicine is designed to be served and that's one opinion and i would also say that we, you and I, have to operate. Most of us working in this Western world are operating in cities and towns on a daily basis. So when a helicopter flies overhead, when I am on a mushroom journey... Or a tornado. Or a tornado comes. (laughs) I have to ask myself, like, 
or if that helicopter flies overhead and I'm like, oh, wow, I wish this helicopter would like leave. It's like it's ruining my journey. That's all stuff that's happening inside of me. That stuff is inside of me, whether I am on mushrooms or not on mushrooms. That agitation and aggravation and anger is something that I get an opportunity to work at because that helicopter flew overhead. That tiny little stimulus is giving me an opportunity to see what's inside. And as Ram Dass says, all suffering is grace. That tiny little moment of suffering about the helicopter flying overhead. If I can shift my perspective and say, huh, I didn't realize that helicopters or loud noises or traffic were really bothering me. But now, because I was just triggered in this really interesting way, I get a look at this this stimulus from a completely different perspective. And maybe that anger is being triggered by something a long way away in my childhood. And if I can follow that path, I can find the suffering caused by that helicopter turns out to be amazing and beautiful grace when I let that anger go. Yeah, well said. And I think that's been my experience, you know, in any kind of any kind of time I've had difficulty with something, that's always been I, I can point to where it came from and let it go. And it is as little fun as it is to have a challenging time, it always, always, always leads to a much better outcome if you're re- re- willing to put in the work afterwards. Yeah, that's it. And 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 all of that preparation and all of the integration is stuff that we're going to talk about here. We're going to talk to people who are really helping people move through stuck energy and stuck thoughts um, to help them process more. Well, let's talk about the other element that I, I mentioned earlier that is one of your specialties and that is music. And Johns Hopkins and others have now come out and have identified that music, especially related to a psilocybin journey, is absolutely critical to delivering a certain type of outcome. And certain types of music administered at certain times of the journey is uh, is critical. And that's something that you seem to have discovered on your own or naturally. And I wonder if you could talk about your experience with the music. You know, you ask questions that are incredibly relevant, but I keep coming back to the idea of the music for ayahuasca is different than the music for mushrooms, and it's going to be different than the music for ketamine. And every guide, every person on this podcast could have something completely different to say. One of the corderos that I work with refuses to share or sing the Icaros when they're out of the medicine. So they only provide those sounds while they are in the medicine work. I know another individual who... Uh, has no problem recording the Arikaros and sh- and sharing it online. Um, so for me, you know, my my theory is the the music from the '60s and the early '70s. The people, the the music that we tend to associate a lot with, or what really sounds good when we're taking mushrooms or LSD. If there's a reason why it sounds good, is because it was probably created on LSD or mushrooms. I think that music has very specific resonance. And we're going to, I have uh, a guest that will likely be on season one, if not uh, season two, who is only works with music. 
is like his whole job is to to help people use music to transform. He's not a psychedelic guy, but his experience using music in expanded states of consciousness is probably more than any other person that I've ever met. His understanding of the f- fundamental components of sound uh, is better than anybody else. So who better to explain music to us uh, and how it can uh, be incorporated than somebody who's an expert. Yeah, and I think that's, no matter who you are, I think that's something that a guide that comes in can pull something away from each lineage or each type of medicines uh, guide that they, they listen to. I think there's going to be a lot of fundamentals or a lot of you know ground rules that each guide uses or facilitator uses when they're in ceremony. And I, I know I'd certainly love to know your secret sauce and what, what makes you choose what you choose and how you switch it up. And I'm sure part of that happened on a cruise ship some, some time ago, but um, you, you've got the feeling. It really is. I think it really is what you just said. It really is a feeling. There is a, there's a lot of energy um, and a lot of just sensing into where a client is at and offering a client. I think about music in, in kind of very two simply simple ways in that the music can either um, take someone somewhere or it can support them in the process that they're in. And depending on where the client's at and where they might want to go, you can play one song that will move them out of a process that they're currently in and move them into a different process, maybe where they want to go. Or you can support them in being exactly where they're at in that process and let them be in it for as long as they need to be. And that is up to every guide, every individual, and um, each session is different. I know I've been there <laughs> and I'm, I've seen you do your work and I know exactly uh, what you mean. So I want to just have two more questions and we'll begin to wrap this up. But the first of those, what kinds of topics will you cover with each of these guests? And I assume it'll, there'll be some legal things. There'll be some safety things. If you can give me a high level overview of the kinds of things you want to, to ask these guests in, in support of, the guides that may be listening or future guides that may be listening. Yeah. So we're going to talk to, I know in season one, we're going to have an attorney on who is going to be talking about some of the, the legal ramifications. We're looking at someone who is specifically related to tax law uh, for individuals. So on the business side of things, we're going to look at, you know, anything from music. We're going to look at holding sacred space, um, ethics, boundaries, um, touch every person that will be coming on has a special story to tell. And rather than asking the same questions to each individual, we're going to really dive into what that person is passionate about, what that person is an expert in and let them share their magic with uh, the rest of the guides. And like I said, some of the folks are not guides, but are working with guides like lawyers and accountants, because that is just as important as, you know, holding sacred space. Because at some point, if you are not um, managing your financial and legal uh, requirements, you might put yourself in an unsafe space. Yeah, great points. 
So we, we already have quite a few guests lined up for season one, and that may be full already. Season two and beyond, what kinds of individuals would you like to appear on this podcast? Age is wisdom. Our elders are the people that have been doing this work the longest, the people that have seen the most. I think we, we have so much to learn. So, you know, if you're a guide who's been operating out there for two, three, four decades, um, if you've been doing this work or if you've worked with individuals who um, are really experienced and known in this space, those are the folks that I want to really spend time for, uh, talking to. I think that we have so much to learn from from our elders. Um, and outside of that, I think that anybody listening to the podcast, I would encourage you to go to psychedeliciq.com. Uh, and if you have questions, if you want answers that you don't know the answer to, uh, let us know. Uh, we'll find the right people to come on and answer the questions. So what season two is, is going to be a lot of the output of season one and the feedback that we get. Outstanding. GVI, I am so excited for this upcoming season. I know that you've put your heart and soul into it. And I thank you for taking the time to, to be a guest on your own podcast today and for sharing all that information with, with us. We, we look forward to your interviews with all these outstanding guests. And for GV Freeman, I am producer JJ Kirkpatrick, and we look forward to seeing you on the next episode of Psychedelic IQ Podcast. Thanks for tuning into the Psychedelic IQ Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, it would really mean a lot if you could leave us a positive review. If you're a practitioner working with psychedelics, please subscribe to the podcast or join the free community at psychedeliciq.com. And if you're looking for deeper connections, knowledge sharing, and even peer support, please consider joining a mastermind at psychedelicmasterminds.com. Thanks, have a great day, and remember, you're perfect and you're right on time.